was awesome. So this morning we're blessed to have Martin Irvin, who's a friend of Pastor Steve's from Louisville, Kentucky, earned his Master's in Divinity at Southern Baptist, which is where he met Pastor Steve. So if you'll join me and welcome him this morning. Good morning, everybody. I didn't know he was going to have the full orchestra today. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you to all for preparing that for us. That ministered unto my soul. Oh, let's take a moment. Let's take a moment and be silent. And let's take a moment to prepare our hearts specifically for the message that God has for us this morning. So will you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Father in heaven, as we come before you today, Lord, we stand in need of your spiritual touch. Lord, do we ask that you help clear our minds from all the cares that we've had to face this past week and what's coming. Lord, may we relax and rest in you, Lord, as you clear our minds and you open our hearts for the message that you've got for each individual person as your Holy Spirit applies the word as God only your spirit can do as we try to proclaim this truth. So, God, I pray, Lord, now that you put your anointing spirit upon me and give me grace to preach in this hour for this congregation that it might be a turning point in someone's life today, turning point for their soul, turning point in their ministry and how they view their role in the church and their role in the kingdom and how they stand before God in eternity. I lay this all at your feet, Lord. And ask for your spiritual blessing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And amen. As uh, Brother said, that uh, I've known Brother Steve since 1999. And I don't believe much really happens that's really it would be an accident. I believe the Lord brought him. He was my next door neighbor in the dorms, okay? That's just a fact. It's just a next door neighbor. Thought I would share that. And, um, go ahead and take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the 14th chapter of Luke. I will have to say this isn't the first time I've been here. I've come by a couple times to hear Steve in person. I grew up in uh, Bell Rive, Illinois, and around, around Mount Vernon. Many of you have asked me that this morning. And uh, most importantly, I'll just share very briefly. I started coming to church when I was 11 years old as an outreach of the Sunday school class. 
I want you to know I got a phone call from a total stranger, a lady I didn't even know who she was. She talked to my mom first. My mom said, come and talk to this lady. She wants you to be in her Sunday school class. So I took the phone call and I talked to her. She invited me to Sunday school. So I went. Now I grew up right, literally right down the street from the church. Literally the same block as the Baptist church there in Bell Rive. I want you to know that I come into church that morning. I was amazed at how everybody there was so friendly to me. Just some little kid in that big church. And I was just, I was just touched. And so many people cared that I was there. And I didn't understand why at the time. It took me a long time to figure it out. But I want to remind you something. I came when I was 11, started coming. It wasn't until I was 13 years of age, 13 years of age, that I'd finally come to a point in my life where I understood the gospel and said, I've got to do something about it. It was a special meeting we called revivals back then on a Friday night. God got a hold of my heart. And all my excuses were over. All my objections saying, I want to know more about it, I want to understand more. The reality is, it was my sin that was breaking my heart. My guilt and my shame was overwhelming me, and I said, I'm not kicking it away any longer. Tonight's the night I am surrendering my life to Jesus Christ, and I claim Christ as my Savior. You know, how do you say that? I just said a simple prayer at the altar. I just said, Lord, please save me, because that's what I understood. I was burdened with my sin And at that very moment, I experienced a cleansing from within. We call being born from above. I received peace and joy in my heart like I had never experienced before. And it has never, never went away. God is with me, and I know for sure I'm saved. So people want to know why I'm from Belrive. I'm glad I'm from a small town. Because it's easy for a church to look around and see people that need to come into their church. And do outreach. And as God saved me that night, and and the next night we came back, the evangelist was there. He says, you know, we're going to have people come and pray. Because I know there's people here that are saved, but you got friends that aren't saved. Why don't you just come and pray for those people? Like, well, I know lots of people that have not. Because I talked about it with with other friends, you know, about becoming a Christian. So I come and I start praying for people to get saved. And they were telling us, whenever you get saved, you go tell everybody. I'd already told my mom and my dad. I told my grandma, told my friends, told people at school, told everybody I could. And since that time, it's never went away. God has had a ministry of evangelism and outreach that he's put upon my heart. And God has called me to that ministry and that work, called me at the seminary, brought me and Steve together, and we've shared a lot of good memories. God's brought me here today. Let me tell you something today. If you're here today, God has brought you here. There may even be people here today, this morning. You really don't know why you're here. You just felt this tremendous urge in your heart today that you need to come to church. Maybe you haven't been coming in a while. Maybe you've never been here before. That happens in the ministry, by the way. I I see people all the time. I'll go to be a guest speaker somewhere. Somebody will just show up from the community. There hadn't been a church there in years. 
They come in and God gets a hold of their heart. You know why? God gave me a ministry of outreach and He brings people in as a witness and as a testimony of the calling of God to preach salvation and to call men, women, boys, and girls to faith in Jesus Christ. And I've got a message today that's going to help you, equip you, hopefully go through some details about how Jesus worked with a group of people so that he might proclaim the gospel message of salvation. Let me just lay it out very briefly what the purpose of our message is today. It's to teach you how to turn a hostile group of people silent enough that you can preach salvation in Christ. I want to show you some principles of how Jesus worked with a group of people how he worked with a hostile group of people, turned it all around on them, and took two tremendous parables that made them think about their eternal soul. I want you today to think about your eternal soul. How do you stand before God today? If you had to stand before God today, and today was the great final judgment in your court date before God, Would you stand for sure that for sure of all things you know that God is in your heart, that you have been forgiven of your sins, that you have claimed Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, and that you are at peace with Him if you had to stand directly in front of Him? Do you know that for sure? Would you be ready to make an appointment like that before God in the judgment? I hope so, but if you're not, we can get you ready. Say one of say well, preacher, you know what? I know I'm ready. But you know what? I need some help. Sometimes I think it's the world has discouraged me. They seem to be indifferent. They seem to be skeptical. How do you talk to people about the gospel? How do you get from a general conversation about in life with somebody to getting into spiritual Things. How do you get there? How do you do that? Well, we're going to show you a couple things, how Jesus worked with a small group of people. So take your Bibles with me, and we're going to read an expensive, an expansive text. Now you look at that long list of scriptures up there and says, how can you preach all that? Very fast. It worked. I thought for sure nobody would laugh, not have to prompt you. Okay? I'm going to preach it fast. Now, really what we got here, verses 1 through 6, is the event. And the other verses are two parables Jesus gives at the event that kind of fills in. So, I fast gospel. Let me share something very quickly with you. One time I was in Chicago, and my sister had called me a uh, cab to come pick her up, kick me up. She'd went on to work and left me there. No cell phone. Couldn't get back in the house. Cab didn't show up. Uh-oh, what am I going to do? Well, pretty soon a cab come by, and I noticed it wasn't the cab company that she said was coming by. So anyway, guy pulls in. I said, oh, are you such and such cab to pick me up for the airport run? He said, no, you just look like some guy that needed a ride. So I pulled in. I go, okay. 
I said, can you get me to Midway Airport for a whatever time flight it was? He looked at me and said, I'll try. I'll take it. So I jumped in the car and we began to high speed traverse across Chicago. Mario Andretti has nothing on this guy. And I said to this man, hey, you know, the last time I was in Chicago, I had a cab driver take me down to Moody Bible Institute. And I got a good chance to share with him my faith in Christianity and the basic plan of salvation. I'm just curious today, while you're driving me to the airport, if I could just share the same thing with you. He said, well, sure, go ahead. And I want you to know I can preach a fast gospel from one side of a Crown Vic to the other. He was driving. He didn't seem to mind a bit that I was uh, preaching the gospel to him. You know why? Even though he was from a world religion that would basically shut you down very quickly, I was very nice to him, very courteous to him, and I asked permission, could I share? Could I share with you? I want you to know, we're going to see this in the sermon, how you can draw people out by asking questions and by them seeing the hospitality of God in the way you live and the way you act. All right, so let's read our text now, finally. We'll give a little introduction. I'll give you an introduction to the text in the context. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler... Of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And now, here comes the parable, the first of two. Since they couldn't reply, that's a, that's a good way to get another sermon. Now, this is what happens. Now, he told the parable to those who were invited. Okay? And I'm going to summarize this when we get done reading it. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, Give your place to this person. Then you'll begin this shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And he said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet... Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, 
the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And here's the second parable at this event. When one of those that reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to, to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuse. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece, a, a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you've commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste. My banquet. Okay, let me break this down for you. In, in chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus gives a list of woes to the Pharisees, right? I mean, it's the strongest, some of the strongest denunciations prophetically that Jesus ever gave to anybody in all, the, all his writing, all the, all the speaking that was recorded. And Luke in 11.53 talks about how they were hostile and they were plotting against him. Now let me give you a history of what the Pharisees were all about. They're just a sect of Judaism. Let me summarize it like this. They were the, quote, establishment. The establishment. And the establishment at this time had gained a little bit of clout with the Romans who were... This is the Roman Empire. They gained a little bit of breathing room. They gained a little bit of power, a little bit of position, and they'd had some freedom to practice their religion under and inside of the Roman Empire. It was a delicate balance, something they felt like they had earned, the ability. And they don't want anybody to come in from the outside and do anything that would mess that up, okay? Now, this is true in any type of establishment. It could be in politics. It could be in a social structure. It could be in some hobby group. You have an establishment, those who have invested in, those who put their time in. And now here comes some outsider coming in here saying he is, can do it better than everybody else. They felt like Jesus was a threat to them. When they are the very people who should have acknowledged once and for all, the covenants are fulfilled, the scriptures are fulfilled, here is the Messiah. But no, they did not want to give up power, 
and position in their practice of religion. And that had become their idol themselves. And this word hypocrite, let me tell you what this means. The word means, and John the Baptist uses it. Jesus uses it. It's all throughout the synoptics. He pulls it in from the Greek language, the word from the theater. The hypocrite was the actor. Put on a face mask. Uh, he would read a script. He'd wear a robe. He played a part. He called the Pharisees, the leaders, the hypocrites, the actors, the fakes. And in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He told his disciples this. After he has lowered the boom on them in chapter 11, he told his disciples to be wary of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which is a covering. I want you to know today, it is a dangerous thing to be a part of a group of people that's part of the establishment. Jesus said, beware. I'm here to say, beware today. Because you can get caught up in going to church, reading the scripts, doing the deeds, learning the policies, the procedures, the theologies, the doctrines, the catechisms, the sayings, the prayers. And it can become a shield for you from hearing the real faith and actually meeting Jesus Christ. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now let's look at our text this morning. I give a text, the text, the context here. So let's look here what Jesus is enduring. And I say, why do you say Jesus endured hostility? Let me tell you something. First thing Jesus did early in the ministry of John, the gospel records it. What did he do? He went to the temple. What did he do down there to win friends and influence people, right? Yeah, he kicked the tables over. There was a corrupt scam running down there, changing out the money. And they were skimming money off of it, and it was just a, a corrupt racket. He went down and kicked the tables over and whipped them and drove them out. That'll make you popular. So he started out hostile with the Pharisees. He's had these exchanges back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, verbally with all of them. So now we're toward the latter part of the ministry of Jesus. He is going to demonstrate for us how he took the reality of the situation, how he worked with people individually, and turned them violent. He very lovingly and compassionately gave these parables that they might hear and understand the truth of the salvation message that's in God. And the great tragedy that broke my heart as I studied these passages, they did not believe, and they did not come. That was the last verse we read. I said, I tell you, none of those that shall be invited, or who were invited, shall taste of my supper. Church, today it ought to break our hearts. When we think about the reality of preaching the gospel, people, and they're not going to respond. They're not going to. But that is no excuse not to do it. Irregardless, have hostile, if they're indifferent, 
if they're unaware or skeptical or self-righteous or stuck in another tradition that just blinds their mind like a covering, it is our job as the church of Jesus Christ to try to reach out to those people. So let's look at how Jesus reached people and try to pull a few lessons and principles for our Christian church and our personal ministry. Look at verse number 1, analyzing the first six verses. It says, On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Let me remind you, church, people outside of the church know who you are. Okay, be reminded. And they are watching your behavior. They're watching your speech. They're listening to you. They're watching your business practices. They're watching everything about you. So in their mind, if the day comes when you try to speak to them or move them toward Christianity, they've got you. All right, remember that. That's what we have here in the passage. There was a corrupt establishment of Pharisees, and they were watching him. And Jesus knew he was going into a trap. So what did he do? And he says, Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. What's going on here? And it says, Behold, there was one before him. See, this was all a setup. What we have here is the itinerant preacher, Jesus, who's coming to town. They've just left the synagogue, and they've invited him over for supper, over for lunch. This is the after-church synagogue dinner. Big deal in those days. Then The Sabbath was a big deal. We don't even have a concept of how sacred and special that was, particularly in the Roman. This is the Roman slave culture. But they've let them have the Sabbath day. It's a big deal. So they invite him over and says, Behold, there was one there. See, this is all a setup. These Pharisees that invited, this is not the kind of guy that gets invited. It's like he's, you know, right there at the doorway. And this is all to see whether or not he would heal on the Sabbath. And this man had a condition called dropsy, and they say that. You would have large pockets of water under your skin. The point is this. If you had dropsy, you could see it anywhere around there. Somebody that had these large pockets of water. It'd be something you couldn't hardly, you probably couldn't hardly be able to work a physical job. You'd have all this, it would be very painful. You're basically crippled. And here are these Pharisees invited him there and put this man right there because they figured what he would do. Here's our first thing. How did Jesus handle this? He knew their thoughts. He knew it was a trap. He knew that it was a hostile situation. How did Jesus respond? In verse 3, the Bible says, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Notice this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? What's Jesus doing in his approach? He's walking into a trap, walking into a setup. He's asking a question. He's asking a spiritual question. 
a theological question to the theological professors. But what is the dynamic? What am I trying to get at here? Jesus asked them a question because he wants them to think. The first thing we've got to do if we're dealing with hostile people, indifferent people, skeptical people, self-righteous people, we've got to get them to think and be challenged with an interrogative that means something to them. Now, they, now, if you ask somebody about the Sabbath today out on the street, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. But you can ask people questions like, do you know what the meaning and the purpose of life is? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? Throw out a truth claim, a proposition. Ask them a question about it. One time I was leading a bunch of students downtown uh, uh, Louisville there when I was a student. And I, and I decided just this one day, I said, guys, let's just try this. We all got our little pocket Bibles. Let's, to every person you meet today, let's go up to them and ask them if they've ever heard the Bible verse John 3.16. And if you could just take a minute and read that verse to them and ask them some questions and get into the spiritual conversation. Because the whole gospel's right there. You know, I was amazed how many people, when I asked that question, when I said John 3.16 from the Bible, didn't even know what I was talking about. But it's simple enough, when I met them right there, I was able to take them through the themes and the stories of the gospel and explain the verse to them. Here's what happened with Jesus. He asked them this question. And what did they say? Well, my Bible says, but they remained silent. Why did they remain silent? These theological professors, the teachers of the law, when confronted, had nothing to say. Let me remind you today, I know it's intimidating. The world just bombards us all the time. I know we think people are hostile. They're indifferent, etc., etc., etc. And it can be overwhelming. Let me remind you today from this principle. Let me remind you this. They kept silent because the world does not have the answers to life's ultimate questions. And we do. How about that? Are you with me? I know this is a big sermon. It's hard to get into all this. We know the answers to who Jesus Christ is. We know the answers to eternity. We know the answer to man's guilt and his shame and his sin problem. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ who died on that cross for our sins and rose again by the power of God. And if you'll yet believe and come to Him and say, I believe, I will trust Christ alone for my Savior, you can be saved and be transformed. You can know what it means to have a full and meaningful life and be satisfied and be happy and joyous. The world does not have answers. We do rejoice in that fact. He leveled them with a simple theological question. Is it lawful to heal or not? And he got no response. Well, what do you do when you get no response? How about try again? Look what he said next. But they remained silent. And he took him. Now, that's coming later. And then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. 
Now think of this. I mentioned he had dropsy. Large bags, basically, of water on his arms, or probably all over his whole body. Those men stood there. They saw those things disappear. They were already silent. He took him and healed him. They well, yeah, that's a great story, preacher. That's great that Jesus can heal. Jesus is God. How does that translate to our church ministry? How do I do this? What's going on here? Hospitality in the Old Testament was seen as equivalent with your faithfulness to God. When Jesus healed this man, he's doing an act of kindness. He's demonstrating his faithfulness to God. He's demonstrating the grace of God, the power of God, the movement of God, the compassion of God, and it silenced them. I want you to know today one of the greatest leveling, quieting things you can do as a church is go out and reach people that cannot reciprocate to you, who cannot pay you back. It's not a favor. It's not a plan. We are sharing the love of Jesus Christ with our neighbors and our friends, meeting spiritual needs, emotional needs, physical needs, for the glory of God to demonstrate our faithfulness. Because we have the answers as Christians. We got the answers. God is with us. We have the truth. And the truth has set us free from our sins. And what was their response to this? Jesus asked them another question after they saw it. Which of you having a son or an ox that's fallen into a well on a Sabbath day? Will he not immediately pull him out? Once again, he uses a question. They've just seen this man healed and sent away. What's going on here? He asked the question and remained silent. When you have conversations with people, here's what you got to remember. You ask the question or you throw out that truth frame, that proposition. You got to practice this. You got to condition yourself in this in conversation with the gospel with people. Throw that out there and let it set and kind of recoil back and wait for a response. But they just weren't going to bite. But what's going on when he says here, when he asks them this question, well, he's appealing to Deuteronomy 22.4. See the balance of Jesus' ministry? He did an act of kindness physical deed was done and how does it follow up with a spiritual and theological connection you know sports ministries are good ministries does the sports let me ask you this question does the sports ministry drive the ministry or does the word of god drive the ministry through the sports that's the question you got to ask is it always driving it's got to drive it or it won't work right Jesus did the act, and the word followed. Because the plan always was to get the word. That's got to be the plan. That's got to be the plan all along. You build the bridge as the truck is coming across. He waited for response, and they further had none. They could not reply to these things. They couldn't reply. 
So, since they couldn't reply, and they have been silenced, this hostile group of people has been silenced as they have been marveled at the wisdom and the compassion of God that's been demonstrated in front of them. Their hearts have now been opened to a point, or it should have been, possibly could have been. Now he takes this next parable to try to get them to think again. And we'll look at this very quickly because the idea was to show the event and the two parables. And this is going to be kind of a summary. Look at this first part. Second point is Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Now let me tell you something. Jesus was not giving this parable just to show them they're wrong for the sake of being wrong. Jesus was exposing their hypocrisy of how they wanted to have seats at certain parts of the table so that he might get to a spiritual truth and challenge them. Verse 7 and 10, look at that part, summary. That he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Now what's going on here at this dinner? Host would probably be at a certain place and everybody had kind of a seating arrangement. It was a big deal. It was a social pecking order. Hierarchy. What's going on here? They watched Jesus in the first paragraph. Now what's this going on? Jesus is now watching them. Jesus saw something that was important to them. And put that in quotes. Important to them. You want to reach people for Jesus Christ? Maybe even hostile people, indifferent people, skeptical people? You've got to find people, and then you've got to find people what they're interested in, what they find important. Now, quite frankly, I look at this, they're all worried about where they sit, and I'm just, I mean, it would be hard for me to really get this. That, to me, that's just kind of silly. What's the point of that? Jesus was wise. He looked at what was important to them, and he made a parable right there about it. Here's, let me, you know, they'll tell you a parable has one primary meaning. Let me give you the primary meaning of this parable to the guests and then to the host. The primary meaning of this parable is this. You guys are worried about where you sit among men, but you need to be worried about how you stand before God Almighty in the judgment. Look at that. What that means in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's he talking about? He's talking about the final days, the resurrection at the end. And so how do you know that? We'll look at the next phrase, or the next, next part of this. Verse 12, he said he talked to the one who had invited him. And what did he say to him at the, in the conclusion? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. And here it is. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Basically, you guys are worried about where you sit. You need to be worried about where you stand. He found something that was important to them. And he flipped it around. 
and said, it's like the judgment. You're worried about the things of this earth. Let me challenge you to think about the things of eternity. Think about eternity. Think about your eternity is what he was trying to get them to do. Trying to get them to think. That's what we've got to do in ministry. Evangelistic ministry. We've got to get people to think about their eternity. Satan wants them to stay worried about time. Policy, procedures, and all the trappings of religion. God says, I want you to think about eternity. 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 And now that they've been challenged to think about eternity, let's look and we'll give a couple summary points from the great the parable of the great banquet. I'll read the first fifteen. And one of those reclined to the table heard these things. And he said, Blessed is everyone who eats bread at the kingdom of God. Now, what's wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with that. They've just been challenged to get ready to stand before God. And this guy just kind of gives a hypothetical, mental assent, understanding to what he says. He's basically saying, that'd be great for everybody else. I'm okay. That's not for me. I'm okay. And the greatest thing you'll ever face in evangelism when you do talking to people is trying to get them to understand there's something wrong with them. They've got a sin problem. The nature, it's in us. We are hostile to God and we need to be transformed. Even Adam, when he says, God, that's the woman you gave me. God, that's your fault. That's a hostility. That's an accusation to God. That is our nature. Jesus announced hope for all, and he invited them to come. He said, come, everything is now ready. And they began to make excuses. There's three excuses. One guy bought a field, one guy bought oxes, another guy said he got married. What's all that about? That's about the Pharisees. That's commercialism and relationships. The Pharisees could not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Savior, because it would they were lost, in some sense, their position with the Romans if we side with Jesus Christ. Commercialism would be over. The commercialization of religion. And our relationships with the Romans. If we acknowledge you as Christ and Lord, we're done. But what's it mean? What's our excuse today? Maybe we're like the guy in verse 15. We just have a mental understanding. You need more than a mental understanding. You need an encounter with Jesus Christ. Not enough to know about him. You need to know him in an intimate, personal way, like I described in my testimony. You've got to meet him, be broken about your sin, and have him touch your life and forgive you of your sin. They made excuses. The excuses about being humbled. The Pharisees were too proud to come. Too proud to admit we're wrong. I've been wrong too long that they cannot admit it. Jesus what Jesus was doing here is preaching on sin in their own kind of language. You've got to learn that as a skill. Nobody's worrying about the Sabbath, but people do want to know, how can I be, have peace? How can I be satisfied? What is the meaning of life? How can I have a marriage that works? How can I raise my children to obey and to, to be to, to grow up and... Be reproductive citizens. How does that all work? 
We got the answers. And it's all in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. Verse 23, and we'll conclude our sermon. And the Bible, and the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways of the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Yes, Jesus encountered hostility. He dealt with their hypocrisy. He challenged them about their eternity. And he invited them to come and share in the great supper. Men and women, boys and girls today, God is inviting you to share in the great supper. The great supper is an invitation to come. Share in the fellowship of God and to know him in this life and all through eternity. You can be saved, you can be forgiven of your sins, and you can know a peace that transcends all understanding. Jesus Christ has paid the way. The invitation has been given. The Spirit of God is drawing upon your hearts today. You need to come. Meet Jesus Christ, your Lord, Savior. Let us all stand together. Our invitation musicians come forward. I'm going to let them play a hymn of invitation. I always give a public invitation, and I also give an invitation to come later. Because I remember the story of Nicodemus, who came by night. He came later. I know the story of Zacchaeus, where Jesus looked up at him and said, come on down. Apparently, he wasn't shy. And I know how hard it is sometimes to come publicly. I know for my own, my own that was one of my excuses. When I was standing there, hearing invitation hymns, well, next Sunday I'll go. Well, I'm scared. I just don't, I just, I'm just afraid. I'm intimidated. I'm a shy, bashful kid walking up in front of the church. That's, that's, that was an excuse that I had not to acknowledge my sin. When I said tonight, that night, when I go forward, I don't care what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter. I'm broken. I need help. I need Jesus Christ. So we're going to invite you to come. If you want, i got my, Bible, my, my salvation plan laid out right there. I'll counsel with you right here in front of everybody. Everybody can go on about their business after the service. We'll sit down and walk through the Scriptures. We'll get some people from the church that you know. We'll walk you through the plan of salvation. Help you find Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Go ahead and, go ahead and start the music, please. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. 
A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.